Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 65. Today in the show, we're exploring the original and most important reason for hunting, food. And joining us is acclaimed food author and blogger, Hank Shaw. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, brought to you by Sitka Gear. Today, as I mentioned a few moments ago, we are discussing the original why behind hunting, and that's food. And our guest, Hank Shaw, is one of the absolute best people to talk to about food and cooking wild game. Now, if you're not familiar with Hank and his books or blog, Hunter, Gardener, Angler, Cook, you're in for a real treat today, as we're going to grill Hank on all things related to butchering, processing, and cooking, free-range, 100% organic, wild, whitetail venison. And I think we're all going to walk away from this conversation with some great new ideas and a mighty big appetite. But before we get into this conversation, and before my stomach starts a-grumbling, Mr. Co-host Dan Johnson, what's going on? Fact. I once held the record in Mount Pleasant, Iowa for most trips to the buffet line at a pizza hut. <laughs> Can you prove that? Uh, no, but I have, well, I can't physically prove it, but I have some friends who have backed me up on it. How many trips was it? 13. 13? Yeah, 13. And that was, I went to, that was in between two-a-day football practices, and then I <laughs> went and practiced football and puked. I'm not surprised by that. Yeah. So now, each one of these trips, is it like one slice per trip or are you loading up the plate oh, no. each trip? <laughs> mark, 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 mark. I loaded the trip up. Good. Good. I had that was back when I had bitch tits, man. <laughs> <laughs> like you still don't. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Oh man, that's awesome. So what you're telling me is that you're excited about this episode. Is that right? Right. I mean, in no particular order, and depending on what time of year it is, I, th- I would say that eating is probably my second or third favorite thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> We're not going to explore that list any further, but based on uh, well, what what <laughs> this this <laughs> this spring shed hunting, we hit a buffet, and, and you did pretty good work on it. Although I think I held my own with you, if you I did. remember correct. You did. You know, those were back in my days where I was carefree, didn't care about what I looked like or, you know, health issues. Now, you know, I got a, I'm, you know, trimming back for this uh, trip we're going on in, uh, in under 30 days, roughly around 30 days. And, uh, you know, cholesterol plays an important role in, in life longevity, I guess you'd say. So mm-hmm. I'm cutting back on the, the trips, maybe, maybe only seven or eight these days. That sounds like a nice moderate number of buffet <laughs> plates to handle. <laughs> I think that's acceptable. I uh, I thought I was going to do the same thing, trim up before a trip. You know, I came out here this summer, live in the Rocky Mountains for two months, hiking all the time, backpacking. I thought, I told my wife, like, I bet you I'm going to be in the best shape of my life after that summer. Well, I got out of the shower yesterday. I was kind of looking at myself in the mirror. I'm like, man, I think I gained weight while I was out here. <laughs> like, I've been, there's like too many good restaurants and like just, 
too many temptations here. I, I, you know, back home, I live in the middle of nowhere, but here we're in a little, you know, mountain town. There's lots of good food, and I'm always finding some excuse to stuff my face with barbecue or a bison burger. So I don't know. We'll see how it goes. But the most important thing that we need to talk about real quick is you haven't had a chance to, you know, throw any back at me. Yeah, I know. This is kind of unfair. Like, it's just like you're giving me right hook, right hook, right hook, and I haven't been able to respond at all when it comes to uh, what you're about to mention, I know. Right, right. So, uh, you know, I'm just putting a little asterisk out there saying, I haven't, you know, you haven't had the time yet to go and check your trail cameras, but the trail cameras that I was having issues with two weeks ago, I think I, I remember us talking about it. Yep. They worked fine this last week, and... One, two, three, maybe four mature shooter bucks showed up on trail cameras. Five, maybe, uh, this week or this uh, Sunday when I went to go check my cameras, and uh, that made me happy. Yeah, I bet they're uh, some nice looking deer too. Yeah, yep. One of them's Mark Kenyon. He's back. He's back. And he's a bad son of a gun. Yeah, he's he's. Uh, I don't know if he's going to be near uh, as big as last year except for it looks like he grew a, an entire like a fifth point on his right side so he's a five, he's a mainframe nine with some junk instead of an eight last like he's a mainframe eight last year what's your guess is he going to hang around your property this fall or is he going to disappear again he'll hang around but where i don't know i mean the, last year he was on the in this in the I'd say the east central part of the property. The year before, he was a hundred percent on the west side of the property, and and then you know as those come in and out, they're you know chases them down to different sides of the property. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's now, uh, hard telling. Now, how close is this spot that you're getting pictures of Mark Kenyon? How close is that camera to your famous neighbor's property where we know that they found his sheds? <laughs> Oh, uh, I would say a mile, mm, just under a mile. Isn't that interesting? A mile. He moved, He's over there a mile farther away from where he is now when he drops his sheds in the winter. Well, yep. when he dropped them this past year at least. Yep, yep. And that's a mile by mile by the road, but as a deer would walk, I'd say three-quarters of a mile. Okay. So, yeah, I guess it's not so surprising. Nope, nope. But, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm pretty pumped and – uh, you know, every day I'm looking at on the maps, looking for places to, you know, put hang tree stands using my historical knowledge of the properties to, I don't know, I'm I'm starting to get geeked, man. And I, uh, starting to get geeked. Well, dude, I got a kid, you know, and that's like <laughs> reality check number one. So as I'm sitting here, you know, I try to sneak down to my computer or look through my trail camera pictures or sneak out to the garage and you know, tinker with my bow or shoot my bow, I get this constant reminder that, you know, deer at this time of year comes, comes second. Well, I I understand that. Now here's an example of how geeked I am. Okay. I subscribe to North American whitetail magazine, right? But I'm in the grocery store yesterday and I see the new issue of North American whitetail on the newsstands, but I haven't got it in the mail yet. So even though I know it's coming in the mail, I know it's going to be there. <laughs> I don't want to wait the couple more days till it hits it. So I bought another copy from the newsstand just so I could read it right away. Are you having all your mail forwarded out to where you're living? We have been, yeah, but it's, okay. it's delayed. 
it's just a pain in the butt. So, yeah. so, well, uh, we'll see if I get it in the mail now or, or later or when, but <laughs> I got my copy now. Yeah. I've been dreaming about it. Like aside from the peanut butter and jelly sandwich dream, I've had, <laughs> you know, I've had other dreams, uh, recently of just like, you know, like me creeping through some corn or some tall grass and, you know, seeing a deer in the distance or, uh, the dream I had like three, three days ago, I think is I'm in my tree stand and I see a truck pull up into the middle of this field that I'm hunting, that I can see from my tree stand and a guy gets out. He's trying to be quiet, but he just drove his truck right near a stand and I started yelling at him. Yeah, this sounds more like a nightmare. Yeah, it was, it was a nightmare, but, uh. There was no homicide at the end of it, so it's all good. <laughs> that is good. One of my one of my dreams is about to become reality, really quickly. Okay. In uh, one week, well, one week from yesterday, I will be in Iowa, returning from my western summer. I'll be in Iowa, knocking on doors and scouting velvet bucks in the fields for two nights. So nice. But didn't f- you already hunt Iowa? You've hunted Iowa before. A couple of years ago, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I've been out there, but I'm excited to to get back out there now and uh, finally see some big velvet bucks this summer, and hopefully find somewhere to hunt. I'm gonna be knocking on doors for two days and begging and praying that someone will let me hunt this fall. So hoping that works out over there on the eastern part of the state, and uh, maybe you and me will get to catch up too. Heck yeah! I'd love it if one of us tags out, and then the other person can come and film the other person shoot their buck. That'd be legit. That'd be too legit to quit. I 100% agree with that. Let's uh, knock on wood and hope hope that happens. Right. Um, but now that we have uh, very successfully made both of us want deer season to get here even sooner, right. we do have to get our guest on the phone because Hank Shaw is expecting us to give him a call, and he's going to tell us everything that you and me and everyone else needs to know about effectively butchering and processing and cooking our deer this year. So what do you think? Should we, uh, should we make this happen and and give Hank a call? My mouth is already watering. (laughs) All right, let's get Hank on the line. All right. With us on the line now is Hank Shaw. Welcome to the show, Hank. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We, uh, are thrilled to have you on the line. And just before you got on me and Dan, were talking about the fact that, uh, this conversation is likely going to make us very hungry. So if you hear some grumbling here on the other side of the microphone, just know that that's probably your fault. <laughs> well, if you hear some chewing on this side of the phone, it's because I'm eating some homemade venison snack sticks. Oh, man. <laughs> now I'm really jealous. Where's ours? Yeah. <laughs> that would been... Don't have enough for everybody. Yeah, so it goes, so it goes. Uh, so, Hank, a few minutes ago I told our listeners just a little bit about you and the fact that you've got a really great blog and several books. But for those that aren't familiar with what you're doing now, can you fill us in on on who you are and, and what you're doing that's related to cooking wild game? Well, it's 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 kind of an interesting story. I mean, I used to be a restaurant cook uh, for you know when I was a you know in college and shortly thereafter, and then I quit one thankless job for another. I became a political reporter of all things. Wow! For 18 years. And uh, during that period, the things that kept me sane, I mean, if you think about it, my job used to be having people lie to me all day long, <laughs> which is no fun. And But what kept me sane was the, the wild world. So it's fishing and foraging and, and ultimately hunting. 
And so even before I started hunting myself, which I didn't start as a kid, I started as an adult. Um, even before I picked up a gun, people would give me game. And game, I found, was really interesting to cook and challenging in a lot of ways because uh, there's not a lot of wiggle room between great and you killed it in wild game. And, and I, I decided that this was going to be something I was going to try and master. And over the years, I've just gotten better and better. And I, I still learn things every day, but I've been doing it pretty solid now for 15 years. Uh, and when I mean solid, I mean I haven't bought meat or fish for the house in a, almost a decade. And, I mean, we exclusively eat what we catch. And um, it's funny because I talk to some audiences, you know, notably urban audiences, and they think I'm some kind of a freak mountain man. <laughs> and then I'll go to places like Idaho or Montana or New Hampshire, and they're like, oh, yeah, we do too. And so it's, it's been a really interesting journey to master this topic um, get really good at it, and then to talk to other people who have been doing it for years as well, and and the, the, it's it's almost like the Borg from Star Trek, you know. I mean, we all get smarter <laughs> by being the kind of a hive mind, and uh -huh. it's it's super cool and super fun, and I'm looking forward to keep doing it for as long as I can. That's awesome. Well, we're glad you're doing what you're doing because uh, you know my wife and myself have benefited greatly from what you've been putting out there in regards to recipes. Several of your recipes have become some of our personal favorites. So, uh, and we like you have not purchased any meat other than we have bought some chicken, but we've bought no red meat in six, seven, eight years now. So having good, well-cooked, um, prepared venison is pretty important to us. So I'm thankful that there's guys out there who are better at this than me who can teach us what to do, which is what we're all hoping you can do for all of us today too. Hope I can help. Yeah. So quickly though, before we move on to the real, uh, the real interesting stuff here, you do have a couple books out and a blog that I do think that all of our listeners should know about and check out after this. Can you tell us just a little bit about that so that for people that are interested after our discussion, they know where to find all of your wild game cooking expertise? You bet. Uh, so I have two cookbooks out. Uh, the first one's called Hunt, Gather, Cook, and that was my first book. And uh, that's something of a, it's kind of a primer for the whole wild world. It's, it's separated into three parts. And the first is foraging, the second is fishing, and the last is hunting. And uh, in book form, that's where I have my venison recipes right now. Uh, and then, but that is kind of a, if you're a hunter who wants to get into foraging or you're an angler who wants to get into hunting, it's, it's a really good kind of uh, intro book. Uh, the second book I have is called Duck, Duck, Goose, and that came out in 2013. And that, as you might guess, is uh, everything you could possibly want to know about cooking ducks and geese. Uh, both both wild, which is mostly what I do, and also store bought, and both books have done really well. I've been very 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 happy with it, and uh, so but day to day and week in and week out, I run a website called Hunter Angler Gardener Cook, and uh, it's basically the home of all of my tips, some essays into hunting ethics, and millions of recipes. I mean. I think without exaggeration, I think I'm pushing a thousand recipes on the site. Wow. And, uh, and it's ranging everything from whitetails to wild turkey to grouse to fish, wild game, morel mushrooms, you know, you name it. And if you can't buy it in a store, that's kind of my niche. And that's what I spend literally every day working on are, are how to get the most out of your wild game, 
wild fish and then wild plants and mushrooms and things. That's awesome. Well, like I mentioned, definitely recommend anyone listening, check those out. Uh, I've been able to put many of these recipes to good use and it has uh, negatively impacted my physical form, I must say. But, um... <laughs> well, you see, that's why, that's because you guys are whitetail hunters. I mean, out here in the West, we, we have to hike like nine miles just to get to the spot we're going to glass. I know. Me, me and Dan are trying to fix that. We're, uh, we're going on an Idaho mule deer hunt this year together to, to work off a couple of these venison meals. So There you go. It should be good. So, so speaking of it then, of getting out there and hunting, you know, our listeners are really serious deer hunters all across the country. And, you know, we're out there trying to find, some of us are trying to fill the freezers and that's it. Some people are out there trying to target a specific deer. Some people just want to get a mature deer. Some people want to get a bunch of does, whatever it is. We're all out there trying to kill a deer to fill the freezer and feed our families. Now today, what I really want to do, Hank, is kind of work through the whole process. So I want to pick your brain about what happens right after we shoot a deer and it's on the ground and we have to start getting it out. And then I want to talk about what we do once we get in the kitchen, if we're going to process it ourselves, and then finally talk about actually preparing it for the table. So from the very beginning, let's say I've shot a deer. It's on the ground. I'm walking up to it. What are the key things I need to keep in mind when I'm in the field and beginning that process to ensure optimal quality for my meat? Right at the get-go, how cold is it? Let's uh, say it's, I, let's say it's November. It's pretty cool, or right around freezing. Uh, see, then you're you're in great shape. You see, I start hunting in the end of this month, and uh, and so where I'm hunting for blacktails, it's often you know 95, 100 degrees out. So you have a whole different set of problems. But if you're in November and it's nice and cold, you have a little bit of leeway. Um, if it's a doe or a small deer. You can actually, you could, and you're close to where you can get it cold, you can actually just chuck it in the truck and drive back. But if you actually have to haul it somewhere uh, or you're far away from your vehicle, you want to gut it right there in the field. Uh, Because, you know, once an animal starts dying, uh, once an animal is dead, you know, the decomposition process starts and temperature really affects it. So let's just say it's typical November whitetail country. You got your deer as you would normal. Now, here's the first thing you do. As a cook, remember, I came at this you know, whole process as a cook and not as a, as, a, as a hunter. So as soon as you cut that animal open, what spills out, you'll notice uh, a very lacy kind of membrane that surrounds everything in the gut cavity. And it looks a little bit like a white spider web. Yeah. That's call fat. And what it is, is it's literally a clear membrane uh, that has a skein of fat. And what it does is it kind of holds all the inner organs together. Save it. As best you can, like have a Ziploc bag. Hmm. Actually, you need two or three Ziploc bags. Just have, keep them in your pack. Save as much of that call fat as you can because it is the greatest thing in the world to cover burgers or meatballs uh, what it does is it prevents things from getting dried out, and it's really easy to keep if you know to look for it right when you make that cut. So, so just to make sure we get this whole piece correct, we we cut it off of the organs or whatever it might be still attached to, put it in a Ziploc bag, get it home, and we can just freeze it in that Ziploc bag, or do we do, need to do anything else to it? When you get home, what you want to do is you kind of lay it out. And it'll be uh, it, because it's deer, it's deer fat, and deer fat uh, uh, sets up pretty hard. Um, you're gonna, it should be still pliable. Uh, if it's not, 
uh, sit it in some warm but not hot water to make it pliable. And then what you want to do is you want to basically, if you get a lot of it, you know, you're going to get some or, 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 or all, depending on how good you are, where the, the animal was shot. But at least you should have the, a bit the size of, say, you know, I don't know, three or four feet square. And basically make sure it's pliable, put it into maybe two portions. And then what I do is I throw it in a vacuum seal bag and just vacuum seal it for later. Okay. Well, once we get to the cooking side of things, I want to make sure we come back to that and, and get a little more information from you on how you're actually implementing that in your burgers or, or meat, meatballs too. But For sure. Taking a step back to, you know, all right, we're opening up the deer. You all mentioned right, so save the call fat. Now continue on wherever you're going, please. The deer's open, right? So you, you say, all right, got my call fat. That's in my first Ziploc. And then, you know, you pull out the deer, uh, the deer guts as normal. And you kind of have a decision to make. Um, I happen to like deer liver and I happen to like deer kidneys and I happen to like deer heart um, and if I'm close to the house um, I'll actually keep a little bit of the lungs and I'll tell you why in a second hmm. um, one thing you remember about working a deer you know when you're working a deer it's not very different from working a lamb or working a, or a small beef uh, and so if you think about all of the different ways that cultures use every part of these animals it gives you insight into what you can do with your deer so first thing take the liver out and put that in a ziploc bag take the heart out put that in a ziploc bag uh, keep the bags open while you're doing this so they can cool off by the way you don't want them to steam inside that bag and i pull the kidneys out because i happen to like kidneys a lot and they're going to be attached to the bat to the to the uh, tenderloins so you pull them out um, if you really wanted to get sporty and, and I must admit, I've only done this once just to say that I did it. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you really wanted to do it, you could pull the stomach out, empty the stomach and use it as a haggis. Ooh. I, yeah, I, I, I don't necessarily, you could, I'm not saying that you should, but you could. <laughs> what's, what's a haggis? It's a Scottish dish of, um, it's essentially imagine an oatmeal, or I mean, it's, imagine a meatloaf that instead of breadcrumbs or bread in it has oatmeal, and it's actually quite good if it's made properly. And it's you have to sort of think of it as a meatloaf and not as weird stuff stuffed in a sheep stomach and then boiled. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm gonna I'm gonna have my co-host Dan test this one out first before I do. All right, Dan. <laughs> hey man, I watch a lot of like. Um, Anthony Bourdain or uh, Andrew Zimmer on the cooking uh -huh. channels. Uh -huh. And that, like, a lot of my questions today are going to be geared towards, you know, like, opposite of just, you know, like, here's the shoulder, here's the back straps, you know, what can we do? And I know we'll, we'll get to that later. But so, do, would you recommend to for hunters to start, you know, maybe trying some of these odd cuts or organ meats? Yes, what I my first number one, the heart. If you're not already saving the heart, you really need to, because all it is is muscle. It's not threatening in any way. It's just muscle meat, and I have all kinds of recipes for heart, both on the website and uh, that will be in in my next book. Um, but the heart is just it's it's non-threatening. It's just meat. That's number one. Number two, and for me, would be the tongue. Uh, I love deer tongues. And because again, it's just meat. 
Uh, if you've ever had, I mean, the tongue sandwiches are a big deal in a lot of different, you know, like in Cleveland and, and Pittsburgh. And I mean, it's, just, you know, you're not sitting there eating a tongue, right? It's sliced thin, but, <laughs> but you know, it's braised and, and, and then sliced thin and it's just meat. It's all it is. It's really, really good. So those are the two easiest wobbly bits to get your mind around. Is there anything we need to know about removing the tongue or is it quite simple? Just great go in there, yank it and, and cut it as far back as we can. Yeah. You, you pretty much just have to manhandle it. I mean, there's no super, you know, great trick. Um, I tend to go in underneath the lower jaw. So if you try to, to you know, by the time you're going to get to it, the animal's in rigor. So, you know, it really, you'd be surprised at how hard it is to pry open a dead deer's jaws. Yeah. Um, so what I do is I'll come in underneath the lower jaw and slice it, you know, thin in there and then pull it. It's, it's, it's kind of morbid, but I don't know if you remember the old drug wars. It's a Colombian necktie is what it is. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> but that's, that is literally the easiest way to get a tongue out. It's, oh. it's a little grisly, but hey, you know, I mean, we're butchering the animal anyway. You might as well use it. Yeah, it does the job. Okay, so we're saving some of our organ meat. We're pulling out the, the tongue. Liver, a lot of people save livers. I like liver too. Um, I like liver mostly not as liver and onions. Uh, I like it mixed in sausage. I like it uh, as pate. I like it as a ravioli filling. I like it, like it as a mousse. Um, it's, a, it's that texture that sometimes gets me. But by all means, save it. Um, and then when you go one step further into the uh, gastronaut realm, uh, save the kidneys. Uh, the kidneys are, um, in my opinion, they're my favorite weird bit, but it's a, it's an acquired taste. Um, they're best soaked. Uh, you literally have to soak the piss out of them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, literally. <laughs> and slice them lengthwise and then grill them on the, uh, uh, grill them on a hot grill till they're still pink inside and then serve them with a lot of lemon and black pepper. They're actually really, really good. Huh. Uh, and it, but there's only two on every animal, so it's kind of a cook's treat. I uh, I admittedly, slightly, I'm ashamed to say slightly, but I have not saved my organ meat in the past. Not I've even the been, heart. Not even the heart. I've just been a little intimidated by it, I guess. And my you know my dad never did, and so it just wasn't something I ever grew up eating. But I think uh, I finally need to I need to try it. I need to use some of that additional potential meat. They and, call it uh, the fifth quarter. Yeah. Because if you think about all of the stuff that you're pulling off. It's a whole nother quarter of the animal. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess I'm going to have to give a couple of your recipes a go when it comes to the heart and uh, test the waters with that. Oh, yeah. Grilled heart, grilled deer heart with peppers and onions. There's nobody. If you, if you like venison, you're going to like this recipe. I mean, there's nobody who, who has not liked this recipe when I've made it. It's, it's sliced up, so it's not like it. Again, a lot of it is shock value. Like if I stuck a, like a cooked heart on your plate, it's like Raiders of the Lost Ark Part Two. I mean, nobody wants to eat that, right? No. But if it's cut into slices, it's fine. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that being a lot more uh, palatable if it wasn't a huge hunk of beating heart on my plate, for sure. Uh, so, yeah, I wanted to make a statement. <laughs> yeah. Have you gone further than that? I, I, you know, like again, comparing to these TV shows that I've watched, have you done anything with like blood sausage or intestines? I've never, uh, I've never done the intestines because it's kind of a shitty job. Yeah. Hey, um, <laughs> uh, 
But um, <laughs> I've made blood sausage out of wild boar. I've never done it out of a uh, out of a deer before. Okay. If you if if you wanted to do it, this is what you'd have to do. You would have to somehow get the blood that's you know how like the the lung cavity all can completely fill up with blood by the time you get to the animal. Mm-hmm. So you would have to somehow pour that into a container of some sort, and then mix it with vinegar or a little salt to keep it from coagulating. Um, I suppose you could. It seems like a big pain to do it though. Yeah. Um, I mean, I you know it's. Is it doable? Yes, but mechanically in the field, it seems very difficult. Yeah, sounds like a lot of work. Yeah. So, you know, if we're in the field, you know, there's the the decision about what deer to take. Sometimes, you know, there's people that are targeting specifically older deer or some people might be targeting, you know, whatever's available. But if I'm trying to shoot a deer just purely because I want something that's going to taste the best, is there any truth to the fact that older deer, specifically older bucks, might be tougher or more gamey? Is the younger deer the, the tastiest or the tenderest? Is that is there any truth to that? Absolutely there is. Um, so there's condition and there's age. Um, a younger animal is always going to be tastier than an older animal, no matter what the sex is. So a very old matronly elk, for example is going to be much closer to your typical bull than if you shot a young cow elk. And the same thing with a doe. So I know a bunch of guys who spend all winter long looking for Mr. Big Rack, right? But And they eat them. But what they really have done leading up to that is they've shot two or three or four or five little does. And they enjoy eating that the whole year. And so, yes, they eat the big old buck, but their real prize are these, you know, adults but fairly young does or young bucks because it's just a question of how long this animal has had to you know work for a living and how much fat it's put on now that said i shot bucks in you know wyoming that were living on an alfalfa field that were in prime condition i mean they had a huge layer of fat on them there's nothing that you could say wrong about them but if you're in the post rut and it's a big old rack. You know, it's not necessarily going to be gamier, but it's going to be leaner and tougher. And that's real. It's I, I had a few deer that were so old and so wizened that the backstraps were even kind of tough, which is fairly unusual. All right. Now, before we move on to the next question for Hank, we need to pause briefly for a word from our partners at Sika Gear. Now, a few weeks ago, we heard from Sika product category leader Dennis Zuck about base layers. And today I want to continue that conversation by asking Dennis just what exactly does layering in general mean and why is it so important? Yeah, and, and in whitetailers especially, I think there's some confusion on this. And, you know, we talked a little bit on some other podcasts about base layers and we talked, you know, about the other parts of maybe a system. But layering for whitetailer, I mean, we all know we don't hunt 35 and sunny all the time, you know, and, and we, we may walk a mile or two or walk 100 yards. We don't know. So there's lots of things changing and climates are constantly shifting. Uh, we're, we're sometimes sweating and sometimes we're not. There's tons of things going on. You know, in a world where you maybe always had your four-in-one parka and you just kind of dealt with all the things that happened in the middle, um, you know, in a good layering sequence, we call this process stacking and shedding. And, you know, and as a whitetailer, we've all done it, right? We've walked in on that cold, cold morning and, 
you know, maybe not wore our jacket so we didn't sweat, but we put it on, we got in the stand. And then as the day went on, we kind of kept kind of removing those pieces. So we started shedding and maybe got later in the day and we started stacking again. But, you know, this idea of being able to have these different layers so that we can adapt to the thermal needs that we're sitting in and still be able to hunt, still have that hand patch, still have that pocket, still have those accessories available to us, whatever it may be. But layering is something that builds you a lot of versatility. You know, you might look at the cost of all these pieces and say, wow, that's a lot. But, did, you know, when you start reconfiguring them, the unique configurations you can come up with, you know, whether you drop this jacket, add that mid-layer, take this mid-layer, and, you know, and maybe drop it and add the jacket. The number of configurations are just all over the place and really can make sure that you always are ready for every hunt you might go on, especially if you travel. You don't know what you're going to see. So there you have it. If you're interested in learning more, visit SikaGear.com. And now, back to the show. Yikes, yeah. So so speaking of tough meat, one of the uh, ideas that you hear a lot about that supposedly should lead to more tender meat is aging your deer. deer. And this is a topic I've heard a lot about, and I've, I've read a lot about certain circumstances where it's good, sometimes it's not, but I'd like to hear your take on hanging a deer how long should you do that? Is that okay? Does it really result in positive results? And is this something that our average Joe Hunter can actually pull off in their garage or yard or, or whatever? Well, that's a lot of lot of lot of questions there, and I'll, I'll try to <laughs> Sorry. Um, So the the short answer is yes, it's worth it. Um, in an ideal world, you know, back to this deer on the ground in November, it's cold, and I and the meat locker friend of mine is open. So I'm going to gut this deer, keep him in the skin and drive him right to the meat locker and hang him. If you can do that, that's going to make the best venison you'll have ever had because you've gotten that animal cold. It's already cold out and you put him in a cold environment quick, quick, quick. And that way you can age him with the skin on. And by doing that, you get tender meat without having that uh, that big rind that you get when you hang a deer that's been out of the skin. Mm-hmm. And you, there's a lot of meat loss when you have that rind. And, but that's an ideal circumstance. There's a lot of guys I know who do that, that are, that are you know, they have that fortune to know a guy who, who will be able to do it. But for the rest of us, uh, it's probably more important to A, get it cold, get it out of the skin, and absolutely hang it a minimum of 24 hours. If you don't, you get what's called shortening. And if you butcher a deer or any animal that's still in rigor mortis, it will always be tough. So, you know, sometimes you're, you're, uh, you, you have to break down a deer. Let's say you're in the wilderness and you've got a big old deer and you've got to quarter it and get it out of the field. Well, you can do that because the animal hasn't gone into rigor mortis yet. So it's like uh, if you've ever eaten like trout or any kind of fish that you just pull out, if you catch a fish and then eat the fish, it's amazing. But if you catch a fish and eat the fish when it's stiff in rigor, it's weirdly tough. Land animals are the same problem. So the very least, you have to let the animal get through rigor mortis before you break it down into the parts that you're going to freeze. If you don't, they'll always be way more tough than it would have been otherwise. So what do you, 
Go Sorry. ahead. I was just going to say, so what do you do in a situation if, you know, if we say we did take that deer in the early season and the temperatures are getting up in the 70s or the 80s or something like that, and I'm worried about that meat, you know, potentially having issues? You know, what do I do in that situation? You do what I do here in California. Um, I mean, if I there's a good chance that I'm going to shoot a blacktail buck at the end of this month, and it's going to be 100 degrees out. So you shoot the animal, you get it out of the, you gut it, you get it out of the skin, and you quarter it and you get it into a cooler and I'll put ice down and then a burlap sack over the ice and then put the meat on top of that and keep it cold for 24 hours. Okay. Okay. That's, that's good to know. That's a good tip. So yeah, I mean, it's the, it's what we do in hot weather and it's like antelope hunters for sure. Uh, because you know how many people say, Oh, antelope is terrible. It's because they shoot these poor animals and like, you know, the end of August, and then they, they don't realize, oh, well, it's 90 degrees out, and I haven't gotten them out of the skin yet. Um, getting that meat cool is, is your number one most important task uh, after making a good shot. Yeah. I always took this for granted, being a whitetail hunter primarily growing up. I was usually killing my deer in October or November or December when it was usually pretty cool, um, and I could, you know, quickly put it in my truck and either take it to a processor or do it ourselves, but... This past year, I killed a bull elk in Idaho in early September, and the temperatures were in the 80s. And I really, in that situation, got a whole new understanding of the importance of trying to get an animal skinned and in somewhere cool and trying to book it back to a cooler as fast as you possibly can, trying to hike out through the miles, five, six miles, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. That was quite an eye-opener when it came to that topic for me. Oh, yeah. I mean, and especially with elk and, and moose and really, really big deer, uh, you can get what's called bone sour, and uh, it usually happens with very large uh, deer or or moose or elk or bison. And what happens is that the, the meat is so hot that it rots from the bones out. And you see this like your your elk. Had you been lazy about it, you could have lost that whole thing. And you know it's because the the high temperatures can just make it rot from within. Yeah, I was very afraid of that. It, uh, it motivated me to keep pushing through our, like, 17-hour day of hiking back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> it was brutal. Um, so before we move on to butchering, uh, Dan, did you have any questions when it comes to handling things in the field? Any more questions for Hank? Yeah, I do. Uh, and this about when, when someone is gutting a deer. Mm-hmm. Let's say that it's a gut shot or you shoot the deer through the bladder or an, uh, where there's, you know – you know, gunk that is exposed to the meat somehow. What are you right? talking about? That never happens. It never happens. <laughs> no, <Nope>. never happens. <laughs> so is that meat ruined then no. if is it if it's exposed to let's say feces or urine? No, it's not. Um deer are relatively clean animals. It's not ideal, but um at that point, water's your friend. Typically, you hear, oh, you got to keep it dry and water's your enemy when you've got a, a deer. This is the exception that proves the rule. If you've got a blown bladder or a blown you know, stomach or whatever, get everything out and then clean it as absolutely best you can. I mean, you don't want to use soap, but you want to use clean water and lots and lots and lots of you know, cloth towels or paper towels to then dry it. So once you clean it out, you're good to go. Um, it's... This has happened to me. I've only had, mercifully, I'm knocking on wood right now. I've only had one, you know how they say in the TV shows, it's a little back. 
<laughs> yeah, that's what they said too. <laughs> I I had one liver shot that we ended up getting them, um, and it was you know it was it was not ideal, but we managed to save almost all of the meat. Um, obviously, if it's been if you know there's you're dealing with parts that have been blown up, those you got to cut around. But in terms of innards getting on the meat, if you're if you're quick about it and you get to, and you can clean it. Now, if you didn't recover that deer that night, I don't know. It might be dicey. But if you if you can drop the deer and walk up on it, you know, soon after, then you're you can save almost all of it. But if it's one of those overnight deals, not ideal. Now the whole deer's not ruined, but everything touching that insides might be. Now that brings me to another quick question in regards to the length of time it takes to find your animal. Let's say is there is there something that you're going to be doing different as opposed to hey I shot this deer I found it you know I watched it drop as opposed to I followed a blood trail I don't want to push it I I find it 24 hours later. It's tough. I mean you know it's because hides hold heat. I mean I don't know if you saw Empire Strikes Back but that whole tauntaun <laughs> thing is real. Uh, I love Star Wars references. <laughs> So glad we got that into the show. <laughs> you can come uh, yeah. on again. <laughs> so, I mean, even, a, even a reasonably clean kill, um, if it's sitting in the in its own innards overnight, unless it's real, real cold out, it's dicey. Um, one of the things that is important to remember, though, is your nose is a, is a very good tool. Um, you might maybe you lose the back the, the tenderloins. Um, but the extremities are almost always going to be good, and the back strap is almost always going to be good uh, because they're shielded from what is essentially a now a a crock pot of bacteria in the innards that have been able to that have been sitting there for 24 hours. So, are you going to be able to get as much out of that deer as you could if you did everything clean? No, but all is not lost. Yeah, definitely not the ideal situation. But like you said, it's it's uh still something you can deal with. Oh, yeah. So, I don't know if we've already mentioned it, but if not, what would you say is the biggest mistake the hunters make during this phase, the in-the-field phase? This is just going from my own experience, um, not only in the field, but actually watching all the uh, outdoor TV that I watch, is not gutting the animal in the field. I, I see people throwing an animal in the truck and then driving around with it way too much, uh, especially with antelope and especially with really nice bucks. Uh, I don't understand why they got the damn thing in the field and then show off the rack. But, uh, I mean, it's still going to be, you know, the rack's still going to be there, but I guess the, it's the, it's the hangover from buck fever is that they just throw the thing in the ATV or whatever. And like, Hey, look at my buck. And it's a great buck, but dude, the thing is cooking inside. So, you know, it sounds like, duh, right? You got the thing as soon as it's down. Um, but you'd be surprised how many people I see don't immediately start thinking about the eating quality of a deer when it's down. I mean, it, the second that deer is on the ground, it's because it's it's the it's what you're feeding yourself and your family, and the rack's not going anywhere. Take care of the meat first, and then take your pretty picture. And you know, by the way, you know you're gonna. You're going to wash him off anyway and make him stick his tongue back in and do all that other stuff so he doesn't look horrible for your picture anyway. 
why not take care of the meat first and then do your beauty shot? Yeah. I've been guilty of that in the past myself. Yeah, a lot of people. It's such an important reminder because, like you said, Hank, it's the that's the most important part of what we're doing here is having that meat to feed our families, and you need to give that priority. So I know sometimes it's tempting to, like you know, like you mentioned, get the get the nice picture right away or oogle and ogle over, but you got to open it up and cool it out. So the next part then is one that I think some people are intimidated by, or at least I was for for a period of time because I grew up in a family where before I was into the hunting, you know, when I was a little kid, my family always butchered their own deer. And then when I sort of came of age and started going up to deer camp, for whatever reason, my grandpa and father and uncles and stuff were getting a little bit older. And now when we're killing deer, they just take it to a processor. So I missed out on a lot of butchering myself. So when I started hunting on my own, that was something that first really intimidated me, you know, trying to break down this deer and process it completely myself. And I think there's probably a lot of other people out there too, maybe if they weren't raised with that education. So from your perspective, Hank, is butchering and processing your own deer, is that something that anybody can do without being too scared about? Absolutely. I mean, here, and it's, let me tell you, let me start by telling you a story. So the first restaurant I ever worked at was an Ethiopian restaurant in Madison, Wisconsin. I know, random, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I was a dishwasher, and but I, I wanted to make some money, so I would come in early to do get some more hours. And like the first week I was there, the owner brings in this dead-skinned lamb and tells me to cut it up. And you know, I'm you know, 21, 22 years old. I didn't grow up as a hunter. Like, what the hell am I supposed to do now, right? So. <laughs> Through many um, <laughs> sessions of being screamed at in various languages, uh, <laughs> I figured out how to break down this animal. And then, you know, I broke down a goat, and then I broke down a pig, and then another pig, and then, you know, I've broken down hundreds of birds. And one thing that's really fascinating that everybody needs to remember all of us are built the same. Every bird, every mammal is essentially built the same. So if you can take one apart, you can take them all apart. It's just a question of size. So, for example, the back legs of everything are a ball and socket joint. The front legs of everything, with the exception of squirrels and people, go figure, um, <laughs> are not actually attached to the rest of the body. We have a collarbone and Weirdly, squirrels have a collarbone, too. I'm not entirely sure why it's like that, but that's the way it is. But like deer, pigs, rabbits, none of their front legs are actually attached to the rest of the body. There's no bone-to-bone -bone attachment in the front. The back straps are all the back straps. The neck's always the neck. The tenderloin's always the tenderloin. The shanks are always the shanks. Now, it could be so small you're not going to bother with it, like in a rabbit, but it's the structure is always the same. So if you want to practice, buy a bunch of rabbits or buy lambs or buy goats. And it is virtually identical to butchering a deer, except the deer's bigger. And then a moose is bigger than that. An elk is bigger than that. You know, so so once you get the general structure in, taking an animal apart becomes second nature. Yeah, it definitely is one of those things that you just have to try it. Right, whether it's a deer or a elk or a 
lamb or whatever. It seemed like, just like you said, try one and then you really get the gist of everything else from there. Now, that being the case, let's say our hypothetical hunter has now, he has his deer, it's hanging up, but he's never broke a deer down before himself. He's got it skinned. Okay. What tools does he need? from your perspective, what tools does he need from this point? And then can you walk us through as, as best as we can, just, you know, with words through breaking that deer down? Absolutely. So first of all, if he's hanging, let's just say he's hanging a couple of days just for the sake of argument, because if he's been hanging a week or two, you're going to have to take a very, very sharp, small knife and cut that rind off. Um, because that outer rind, you don't want to eat. Um, so let's just say he's been hanging, I don't know, two or three days. He's through rigor, breaking them down. First thing I do is take the back legs off because they're heavy and you know they're, it, it's much easier to manipulate the rest of the animal. So I'm going to get an apron. You, you sound silly, but please wear one. Otherwise, you're going to go through shirts and jeans like nobody's business. <laughs> I can't tell you how many she- jeans have gone through like, oh, they're completely soaked with blood. I guess I'm buying a new pair. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've done that a few times. Yeah, you know, so an apron is important. Um, you want what I, I, I mean, I can break an animal down with a pen knife, but uh, at the house, I will use one of two things. Mostly, I use a really old carbon steel, stiff bladed boning knife. And that is a tool I pretty much use almost exclusively. I also have a flexible bladed boning knife that I will use to remove silver skin. It's a much thinner blade. Thickness of the blade is important with, uh, with a number of things, and taking silver skin off is one of them. If you've ever tried to take it off with a thick bladed knife, you find that you end up taking a lot of muscle. With a very thin knife, like a fillet knife, a fish fillet knife is perfect for this. Yeah. Um, you don't lose any muscle. So the stiff boning knife flexible boning knife or a fillet knife, a hacksaw or a sawzall. So um, for one of two reasons. One, I happen to like venison ribs, so I'll hack off the ribs with either a hacksaw or a sawzall. And two, uh, the cleanest way to take the whole shanks off is with a saw. You can work your penknife in and around the joints, but then the end, the shank has this one weird bony thing on the end of it that looks weird in the pan. Um, so mostly it's aesthetics, but it's much easier and prettier looking to deal with a deer shank by sawing it off than it is by just going with the, the joints. So th- those are the only two places I need a saw is the ribs and the shanks. You know, you don't even need a saw for the head, and although it helps. Um, I... I, incidentally, I'm not actually sponsored by Havilon or anything, uh, but I happen to like their knives. Yes. Um, so I, I like them a lot for skinning. Um, I don't use them for anything else. But they're, they're very nice, but they're kind of scary. Like I feel like they're so sharp. It's like every time I use it, I'm like millimeters away from cutting my finger off, I feel like. But I still use them because they're amazing. But that's kind of a good thing. You should be scared of a really sharp yeah. <laughs> True. <laughs> Uh, and beyond that, I don't really need any other hardware. Um, you can, I mean, obviously you need a sharpener because you're going to have to sharpen your knife at least once during this process. All right, now we need to take one more brief break for a word from our partners at Huntera Maps. And today, Ben Harshine, whose story we heard last week, 
has got an exciting announcement to share with all of us here at the Wired to Hunt podcast. So, Ben, I hear the Huntera is going to be announcing some exciting updates and new products this week. Can you give us a scoop? Yeah. Yeah, so a bunch of new things coming out. We're really excited for it. Uh, We've been working to fine-tune what we're offering here. Uh, So here they are. Uh, We've updated our our map template styling for a cleaner, more stylish look that is a little more brand consistent with what we offer. Um, All maps now come standard with an acreage grid. It's really thin, but think uh, the ability to do a precise trail uh, trail camera survey, or uh, future food plot you want to cut into the timber. Um, another new feature we're really excited about is the, the topographic contours we're able to overlay right on top of the map. Again, these lines will be really thin so that it doesn't take away from the, the actual image, um, but they're going to be really precise, and uh, you'll be able to uh, determine all of the different terrain features and funnels that are important to you as a, as a hunter. Um, we also have the ability to overlay any hunting or habitat features on the map. So say you want to catalog where all of your, your blinds or, or stand locations are now, or you want to overlay where a couple of the different trails are to access your property, we can do that. Food plot locations, timber work you may have done, really the story that, that uh, matters to you, we can overlay on that map. We've got a new 15 by 22 size. Um, which is really meant to accommodate the, the properties that are anywhere from 40 to 100 acres. Uh, and then last but not least, we're really excited to launch Magna Maps, which is uh, essentially a magnetic map. comes with a dozen little earth magnets you can mark your stand and camera locations with. And uh, those will be available here uh, really soon. All of it's going to be on Huntera.com. So we've got new maps that show the actual topographic lines with the terrain. We're going to have the ability to overlay food plots and timber improvement locations. We've got a new type of map that can be mounted to the wall, and then I've got magnets that can mark my cameras or stands or different things like that. And that sounds incredible, but when's the map going to come out that shows me where the big buck is? <laughs> Man, that's going to be... Uh... It's going to be your the, the the map we make for you for Ohio and uh, <laughs> and uh, the map you use to kill Glenn. I think that's going yes. to be the one. I really hope that we can produce that map. You let me know when that'll be at my doorstep, <laughs> and I'll be ready. <laughs> you got it. Awesome. So there you go. And if you're interested in trying a map of your own from Huntera, we've got a special deal from you from the guys Huntera. They're offering all Wired Hunt podcast listeners ten percent off. So use promo code Wired. W-I-R-E-D, to get 10% off at Huntera.com. And now, back to the show. So, quick question for yep. Dan, actually. Dan, have you actually butchered your own deer before? That's all we do. It is? Okay. For yep. some reason, I didn't know if you did or not. So, so Yeah, we don't use a processor. We have all the, all the, uh, the knives and saws and lay a big, actually, it's a door on top of two saw horses, put some plastic over top of it, cut it up, and uh, that's how we do it. I use my kitchen counter, so it's like Goodfellas in my house. <laughs> <laughs> my my girlfriend's a hunter, so she's tolerant. <laughs> that's good. That's a good thing to have. I uh, I haven't got to do the actual breaking down. I've in the house. I'm forced to do that in the barn, and then once I get everything deboned, then I'm allowed to bring it in the house. But uh, it's a couple phases for me, but. Let's say now we've got those tools. Can you walk us through now those those first steps you in bet. the process? 
So let me preface this by saying, like, Dan, I want you to listen because I, I guarantee you that you butcher a deer differently than I do. And the point of that is butchering is a very personal process. A every culture does it differently. Often families do it differently. The way you butcher is the way you cook, and that's a fundamental fact. So I know how I like to cook deer and, and any other animal for that matter. So I cut the parts that I caught are based off of that. And that's important to remember. Like, so deer chops, this is a good example. So I cut back straps off. I tend to not cut chops. I cut what they would call in a beef a boneless ribeye, but it's a back strap and I cut them in long lengths. So a typical white tail, I'll get four. Uh, you know, I'll cut each side in half after removing the chain. Um, I don't know if you've noticed this, but uh, a backstrap is not just one muscle. But a true backstrap st steak is one muscle. And what you end up doing is you end up removing that long, skinny muscle off the backstrap. Um, you can just pull it off, actually. And it makes some of the best stew meat or the best grind you have on the deer... But if you keep it on the steak, that connective tissue will separate as you cook and not soften enough, and you end up with this chewy part, and nobody wants a chewy part in a backstrap. So, but that's a personal call. Some people leave it on. And some people want chops because they want the bone in. So you need a saw for that. And in order to do that, A, you're going to sacrifice your, your deer ribs because you have to come down a bit off the ribs to get a nice proper chop. And second of all, you're going to need to saw right through the center of the, uh, of the spine. Now, one of the problems with that is, especially in many states in whitetail country, you have chronic wasting disease. And in CWD areas, you know, I've, I've done a lot of research on it, and I'll happily keep leg bones in a CWD area, but I will not keep the spine or the head in those areas. Because if, it, if that prion is going to jump species... It's going to come from the spinal column. Yeah, interesting, interesting note on that, too. And this is still not uh, a peer-reviewed study, but a study just came out that showed, um, I believe, I, I could be wrong on the details here, but the study showed, I believe, that it had jumped to mice that had been fed CWD-positive meat or, or something of that kind. So oh, interesting. there's a new article that just came out last week saying that there's now the possibility that it might be able to jump to humans based on this research that, you know, it doesn't sound like it's been fully vetted yet, but just a possibility. So something to think about. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely something to worry about, you know? So, but you know, if you like chops, that's what you got to do. And that's, that is much more technical process than what most of us who butcher at home do, which is to take the whole backstrap off and cook it as either lengths or medallions. Um, another thing that a lot of people don't do is they don't use the shank. They'll either feed the shank to the dog or they'll grind it for burger, which I think is a horrible mistake for two reasons. One, the shank is maybe, eh, it's not my favorite part of the deer, but it's up there because there is nothing better than braised venison shanks because all of that horrific connective tissue that destroys your meat grinder when you're trying to turn it into burger softens really slow and it makes the, the meat silky tasting. It tastes like it's been basted in fat, even though it hasn't. And so when it eventually falls apart, it's it's just a miraculous piece of meat. There's nothing else like it on the deer. And basically, if you, rem if you forget everything else about this entire podcast, don't grind your shanks. <laughs> so 
So that being said, then, for someone who's trying to figure out how to do this with the shanks, how do you properly remove the meat from the shanks? Or do you, uh, you how do you do that? Keep them on the bone. You saw them off at the joints. And then you just cook, you braise that whole thing? Yep. And if it's a really giant deer, um, you cut it into very thick, like three inch wide uh, discs, like asabuco. Huh. Normally, I only do that with, uh, with elk or, or moose. But a really giant whitetail, like a 350-pound buck, yeah, you're probably going to have to put that one into asabuco. But a typical doe or a typical, you know, forked horn or 3 by 2 or whatever, um, now you can tell I'm from the West. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, those are going to braise them whole. Interesting. Interesting. So for the people out there who may not know what uh, asabuco is, like myself, or <laughs> braising technique. What what are those two? So asabuco is a very classic Italian dish. It's done with a veal shank or a pork shank. And so the shanks on these bigger animals are so long you couldn't fit them in a pot. So what they do is they have taken this long shank and they've sliced it crosswise. So you get essentially a bone in the middle and then all of the, the shank muscles around it and it's a it's a cylindrical piece of meat. And they braise that, and it's a it's you can get two or three off of an elk shank, for example, and it's it's a way to enjoy that meat, you know, without having a you know an eighteen inch shank and looking for the right pot to fit it in. Um, so it's 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 sort of born out of necessity. Braising um, is you know you can separate stewing from braising in that the piece of meat in the in a braise is not submerged. So you've got um, a pot, say a Dutch oven, and you've got onions and vegetables and, and some sort of liquid and whatever, and you stick your meat in there. Usually you've browned it first, um, and then it will, you, you, know, you nest it in this, these vegetables and liquid, and then you cover, cover the pot, and then you let it cook really slow either in the oven or on the stovetop until the meat wants to fall off the bone, and you serve it as a piece of meat. So, so a braise is going to be uh, short ribs or, you know, beef cheeks or a shank or a shoulder roast where you're served a big piece of meat that you then cut from. Whereas a stew, you're going to separate the meat into bite-sized pieces. And I'm assuming most everyone knows this, but just in case, the shank is that, you know, that's the part of the leg below the quarter above where you cut off the, the bottom foot section. Exactly. Um, so for, for time's sake, I want to, I want to fast forward a little bit in the process. Let's say we've removed the back straps, we've removed the tenderloins, we've pulled off the front and back quarters. Um, this is one piece that I've struggled with is once I've got my quarters, specifically my, my hind quarter, I feel like I always do an awful job of then breaking down that quarter into steaks or roasts appropriately. I've, I always feel like I butcher it quote unquote, (laughs) not the way I want to butcher it. Do you have a recommended, like, I've heard there's, you know, follow, follow the muscle yes. um, pieces, but can you walk us through that a little bit? I can. Well, let me, let's, let's do the front shoulder real quick. If the front shoulder is big, stew meat or grind. Uh, if it's really big, like on an elk, that's a whole different story for another day. But for a typical whitetail, um, if it's a small animal, I will uh, actually save them whole and braise whole shoulders. It's really a great winter meal for four. Wow. But bigger ones, like you, imagine your pot when you're breaking the animal down. Like if, you're, if your deer is small enough where like, hey, that shoulder will fit in my pot or my roasting pan, keep it whole. Um, if it's too big, then break it down. So anyway, with the back legs, 
Um, so you've got a leg, you've taken the shank off, and so you now basically are faced with a giant leg of lamb. This is basically what it looks like. What you want to do is you, is you want to put your, you set your knife down and use your fingers to run along the seams and all the connective tissue and separate everything with your fingers as best you can. And you might need to pick up your knife to, to break a little bit of silver skin here and there. But if you start with just your fingers, just trying to just work in that back leg to work, work those different muscles apart from each other, you will go a long way to doing it correctly. Um, one thing that American butchers tend to do, and in my opinion wrong, is they will just use a saw and just cut meat into basic shapes. If you break a hind leg down into its constituent parts, what you end up with are whole cuts of, of meat that are free of sinew and they, they cook better. You can slice them easy. You can serve them rare if you want. So, I mean, the problem with like a regular typical leg roast is if it's got a bunch of muscles in it and you cook it rare, all of that connective tissue has not broken down. So it's going to break your teeth or at the very least, it's going to be very cheap dental floss. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, but this process separates them all. So then you, you, you know where the grain of that roast is. You end up getting three big roasts off a hind leg. You get what I call a football roast because it looks like a football. It's the rump. You get a nice big, what looks like a tri-tip, you know, a big, thick, triangular cut, uh, cut roast. And then you get a kind of uh, a roast that's shaped like a trapezoid, uh, you know, weird four, four, you know, four-sided angular thing that has a great grain to it. And those are your four big roasts. Then you'll get what I call the hidden tenderloin, which on a beef would be the eye round. Uh, it's, it's attached to the side of one of these ro roasts, and it's a cylinder. That's the trickiest piece to cut off because that one won't come off with your fingers. You have to use that, that thin fillet knife or that thin bladed knife to just work the, the, work the uh, silver skin that separates it. Now, what are you looking for? You're looking for what essentially looks like cobwebs. You know, that connective tissue that connects those different roasts together on the leg are all put together by a cobwebby membrane and your fingers will be able to separate it. So if I've got this leg, first thing I do, shank's off, it's off the body. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take the inside of the leg. So you'll be able to remember what's the outside and what's the inside. So you take the inside of the leg and you'll see a seam, a line of sinew, roughly paralleling the ball socket to where the knee is. Take your knife and then cut down so the point of your knife is tapping the, the femur go and run that seam go tap 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 all the way down so you basically laid open that leg now you're gonna have to use the very point of your knife to essentially free the bone from the rest of the leg you're not bothering with the individuals yet you're freeing the bone from the leg if you want if you want to see a video of this look up videos on how to debone a leg of lamb it's exactly the same process. And that gets you started. And once you have that bone out, then you use your fingers and you can separate virtually everything with, with no knives. Interesting. I, uh, 
I definitely need to watch a video to make sure I do a, a cleaner job of doing this because I, I tend to just hack and pull, and I'm not sure if that's ideal. <laughs> and that's fine. I mean, you, you eventually, eventually, you you will memorize the geography of a hind leg. And by the way, they, they they're all the same. Pigs the same, elks the same, deer's the same. So, let's say we we've, we've pulled out these separate pieces. Uh huh. And we want to make some of them and some of it cut into steaks. Do you recommend, I've heard some people just keep these whole pieces, freeze them, and then when they want to make a steak, they actually cut off either a, a thawed out piece and cut the individual steaks they want off, or other people will cut them to steaks now and then individually freeze them. Do you have a preference on that? I tend to not do that. I tend to cook whole roasts and then slice it like a London broil or a roast beef. But if I were to make steaks, I would pro. well, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, it's how many people are you serving? If you're serving one or two, yeah, you're going to have to portion them beforehand. If you're planning, if like, if you look at a roast, like, hey, that'll serve four, freeze the whole roast and then cut it. Yeah. But I mean, it's just, it's just how, how many people are you serving? Dan, what do you do? Do you like to cut your steaks up first or do you freeze the whole thing? Yeah, we do. We do a lot of um, individuals, meaning we will, we will cut the steak or the portion based off what kind of meal we want label the packages as such and then you know if we want to roast we pull a roast out of the freezer if we want steaks we pull the steaks out of the freezer yeah now you know one thing i haven't tried you know i've, I've done i butchered a number of deer now but what i haven't done is try to actually process some of my venison into sausages or brats how difficult is that hank and is that something that the average guy can pull off with a few basic tools no um you need in order to do it your processors are always going to be better than you at it until you decide that you want to be good at it. Um, and if you decide that you want to be good at it, you need to get a, a meat grinder and a sausage stuffer. And you have to say, hey, I want to be a good sausage maker and put some mental energy into it. Um, I can't tell you how many horrendous venison sausages I've had by people who haven't really paid attention to the process. It's not rocket science at all. But it's something that people spend their lives per perfecting, and you need to respect that. So um, at the very least, buy the grinder attachment to your KitchenAid if, if you've got one. Um, better is to buy an actual meat grinder because then you can make your own venison burger. Um, I mean, I make all that stuff. I make brats. I make salami. I mean, I dry cure everything. But it's one of those things where can really have some unpleasant results unless you pay attention and, and do things correctly. Speaking of grinding, um, lots of folks like to grind their own venison hamburger. Uh -huh. And one of the popular things to do a lot of times with burger, especially if you bring it into a processor, they'll add some additional fat from another animal, pork yep. fat, beef fat, something like that. Do you recommend doing that when you're processing deer at home? And if so, you know, what kind of fat, what amount? The only reason to not put pork fat into your burger is if you're a Muslim. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> you know, I mean, people put beef fat in sometimes, but the problem with beef fat is it tastes like beef. So your venison burger no longer tastes like venison burger. It tastes like burger. Pork fat's neutral, and it has a really great melting point. And uh, case in point, I just got – I was just given – a big block of ground elk from a friend and I had it was in butcher paper and I had no idea what was inside so I thought it out and oh 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 it's roughly ground 
and there's no fat in it and there's a ton of sinew in it. So it was it was virtually unusable. Fortunately, I could make jerky out of it. So which is what I did. And you could use it as the base for spaghetti sauce or for chili, but I guarantee you, if you want to make a real burger, um, you need fat in the grind, and you need fat of at least 15%. 20% makes a better burger. And for sausage, you're looking at about 30% or even 33%. So the every butcher I know who cares about his sausages uh, puts pork fat in them. Yeah. Some people, we do sometimes, we, we grind up bacon right in there. Is that something I, you recommend? I, yes. Or? In fact, I love... I love venison burgers that are ground with bacon ends when you do it right away. So uh, let's say I'm having a party and I'm going to make venison burgers. I will grab a bunch of meat out and I'll figure out what the weight is and I'll grind it with bacon ends and then make those burgers You know, that day. It's a surpassingly awesome burger because you've got some of the flavor in there. You've got some of the smoke in there. The reason you don't grind your um, venison with bacon ends and then freeze it, it's only, it's only because I'm kind of a burger Nazi. Okay, <laughs> so the problem with doing that is this: the salt in the bacon will start to, to denature in the venison, and the difference between a burger and sausage is is precisely that. Every, all of the best burger places in the world, and it could be down the street at a diner. The meat's the meat. The salt goes on top of the meat, and you cook the meat. The salt is not in the burger. The salt is on the burger. And that's what makes a burger a burger. It gives you that texture that you're all looking for. When you have the salt in the, in the burger grind, it starts to denature the proteins, and it starts to form what's called myosin, which is to meet what, what uh, gluten is to bread. It binds it together, which is why like, we can bite into a sausage and a good sausage isn't crumbly. A good burger is just barely held together. And that fundamental difference is why um, I add salt late in the process. And it's, I mean, this is high cooking. This is like restaurant stuff. And I know if you grind your venison with bacon ends and you make burgers out of it, they'll be fine. I've done it. They're just better if you do it right away. It's good to know. And that's why we're talking to you because we're looking for these, these next level pieces of information that can really take our venison cooking to the next level. And I think that is a perfect transition then to the cooking aspect, which is, you know, the most fun part of this whole process. I personally think I really enjoy the cooking aspect. Uh, but Dan, I want to give you the first cooking question for Hank here. What's on your mind? Well, the very first thing that comes to mind is I'll be honest with you. I am not good at, let's say knowing whether it's, whether it's a steak, like a beef steak or um, or a deer steak or, or anything. I, especially for venison, I tend to overcook my food mm. as you know, like, like, like beef, you know, it's like, you, you can't just throw it on the grill. What is, I guess, what is a recommendation? Let's say you're cooking steaks. What is a, what is, is there a time? Is there a thickness that you should, you should cut your steaks? Get, talk to me. <laughs> help me help help dan <laughs> padawan listen and you alert uh-huh, there um, we go number two <laughs> number two star wars <laughs> yeah this is this is the best episode yet 
<laughs> All right. So here's the thing. I cook backstraps. So which means I will cook lengths of those are the only steaks I cook because everything else I cook is a roast. So let's just deal with backstrap and you can extrapolate from that. So I typically will cook a, a length of backstrap about a foot to 18 inches long. And first thing that I do is like, hey, I want to cook backstraps. So it's thawed, right? So I pull it out of the refrigerator and salt the heck out of it. I make it rain on the backstrap and let it sit there at room temperature a solid 30 minutes and an, even an hour is fine. Why? Because otherwise you're going to uh, get what's called black and blue. You know, you cook the outside, but the center will be, you know, icy cold. There are exceptions to this, and I'll get to that in a minute. But if you're dealing with a, a good steak or a backstrap, right? And what I mean by a good steak is at least an inch, inch and a half, two inches thick. I mean, it, it kind of, you've gone to all this trouble to hunt your deer and, and put really quality meat on your own table. Why would you cook thin steaks? Do you buy thin steaks? I hope not, because... <laughs> If a ribeye that's less than an inch, inch and a half of what thick is not worth buying. And so, I mean, you want a steak that like makes you an American, right? <laughs> True. And so you want some thickness to it, and but that requires the meat to come to room temperature. So you salt it, and that makes that what that does is that starts to get that seasoning. It starts to get things going. What you do is, and then you you throw it on the grill, and you and you cook it in the usual way. And what that means is just you know you nice you're getting a nice char on it. Well. Let's just say it's on the grill. Slap it on the grill and don't mess with it for, depending on how hot your, your fire is, at least three or four or five minutes. Just don't touch it. Let the fire do its job. Same thing with a frying pan. If you've got it sizzling in a pan, let the pan do its job. Have you ever had a steak that you're cooking and you're trying to flip it and it's stuck to the bottom? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, didn't, you were messing with it. When it's ready, it will come clean. Well, if it's not ready, it'll stick. That happens with fish, happens with meat. So it's, a, it's a truism in cooking. And so so then this... you flip it only once. Here's the secret. I used to work steak station in a steakhouse, right? So we seared the crap out of one side of everybody's steak. So it will look beautiful. The other side was raw. So if you wanted a rare steak, the other side only got cooked for like a minute. If you wanted medium, got cooked for maybe three or four minutes. If you wanted medium well, four or five minutes. If you wanted well, we would give you one of the steaks that somebody sent back earlier. <laughs> True. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, who, I mean, really, who wants to eat a steak well done? That's just horrible. I mean, it's someone angel dies if you do that. This is not the point of a steak. <laughs> and so once you get it to where it looks good, how do you know if it's correctly cooked in the center? So this is, this is radio, so I'm going to ask you to hold out your hand. Now I want you to, with your other hand, touch the base of your thumb, that big pad at the base of your thumb. It should be soft and gushy, right? It is. Okay. That's what raw meat feels like. Now touch your thumb to your forefinger. Just touch them. Now touch that same spot. It's a little firmer, isn't it? It is. That's rare. Go one finger in. See, it's firmer still, but still got it's still got give. Mm -hmm. That's a solid medium. One more finger in is medium well. And then if you touch your pinky, just do this just for the sake of argument. 
Touch your pinky to your thumb and now touch that pad. See how it's hard as a rock? That's how Dan's steak tastes. That is cat food. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, think, I think you posted this on your website at some point. Is that right, Hank? Yeah, that's, it's called the finger test for doneness. Yes, and I, I read that, and I've used this since that point, and I've showed it to people, and it makes me seem like the smartest, most culinarily, you know, premier person around when I'm doing this hand thing, and people are very impressed. So thank you for giving me that little party trick. It's a Jedi. It's a Jedi trick. <laughs> yes, it is. So continue. Anything else we need so, to know on that front? So that's. I mean. So all right. So it's cooked perfectly. Now you have a choice. Normally, I will let the meat rest for however many minutes it cooked. Minimum of five. Maximum. I mean, a big giant roast can take twenty minutes to rest. But typical steak, five to ten minutes rest. Now, normally, that's what I do. Because what's going on in the interior of the steak is heat has caused all of the molecules inside that meat to just start jumping around. They're Imagine like a, a basketball game and fast forward, and that's what the, they're all doing. So if you were to cut that steak in half, at that moment, everybody's going to run out and run all over your cutting board, which is normally no bueno. So when you rest the meat, you slow down the action of that basketball game until finally things are in slow motion. And then when you cut the meat, you don't get a lot of moisture loss. And it stays in the meat. On that topic, really fast, Hank. Uh-huh. I've always been told this. I've always read this. It always pains me, though, to let the meat sit there. And I'm always worried, you know, it cools so quickly. Do you do you keep it covered or covered in aluminum foil or something? Or am I just supposed to let it rest on the counter and let that natural cooling happen? I let it rest. Um, the only reason to uh, to coat it or to cover it, in, they call it tenting it in foil. Mm-hmm is if you, let's say you took out a length of backstrap. Let's say you cooked it, you thought you had it where it was, and you cut a slice off, and you're like, oh no, it's undercooked. Tent it with foil, that will hold that heat in, and you'll you'll step up one level. So if it was too rare, it'll go up to medium rare, and you'll be able to serve it. Hmm. But in general, you keep the, you know, you just let it go. You let it go, and, and if you're really that worried, which nobody notices anyway, because it's still gonna be warmer than room temperature. Um, but if you're really worried, have a nice sauce that's piping hot, and that will that will you know they'll they'll even if it's a cold steak and you serve a piping hot sauce over it, no one will notice. Yeah. Okay. So you can cut it and serve it right away, but only if you want all those juices to come out to be the sauce for whatever it is that you're serving it with. Gotcha. That's the only reason you don't rest a steak. So Dan, do you feel like you're prepared now for the next venison steak? Well, I'm going to give it a try. <laughs> That's all you can do. Let me do. give you one tip, though. If you've got a lot of guys will do like butterfly steaks or the, the processor will send them back with some thin namby-pamby half-inch cut thick steak thing. And you're like, oh, well, what am I supposed to do now, right? When the meat is thin like that, and this, this holds very true with flank steak. I cut all the flank steak off my deer. Um, flank steak or a very thin regular steak needs to be cooked cold. Because by the time you get a really nice sear on it, the interior will be overcooked. So it's possible, Dan, that your steaks are too thin and you're cooking it right, except the interior is getting too warm by the time you get that nice crust. If that's the case, go from refrigerator to flame right away. But I only do that if the meat is a half an inch thick or thinner. Interesting. Right. So how about the next most popular meal in America, the hamburger. Can you walk us through the perfect grilled venison hamburger? Absolutely. Um, I have 
a huge discourse on burgers <laughs> on the website called it's just my venison burger recipe so if you google venison burger you'll find it um, and it goes through all of this detail but I'll run it through quickly right now like I said before the the salt goes on the outside of the burger um, if you are cooking in a um, on a frying pan a coarse ground burger is tends to be better if you are cooking on a grill a fine grind venison is better because it holds together better and forms a more cohesive crust. And the thing about a, a good burger is that a good burger holds together barely. It's like a crab cake, you know, like a crab cake should just barely hold together. It shouldn't be gummy. And so, you, you know, when you make your burger patties, you know, you're not kneading bread. You're just kind of bringing them together. And, and that crusts, is one of the key things that keeps your burger together so to get it on the on the bun and so if you overwork it then it's gonna get tough it's gonna get more sausage like it'll still be okay but it won't be perfect the next thing you do when you make your your patties is you know you make your regular patty use your fingers to indent the whole center of the patty so the center of the patty should not be as thick as the edges of the patty when you put it on the grill now, why do you do that? The reason you do that is because the second it hits the grill, the meat will contract. And if it contracts and you don't have that indent, what you get is kind of an egg-shaped burger. We've all had them. It's mom's brontosaurus burger from when we were <laughs> So true. And so you get this egg-shaped burger, and it's just weird, and you can't get your mouth around it, and the interior is not cooked, and blah, blah, blah. Make that indentation, and you will have nice, level burgers. Finally, uh, there's no science that shows that flipping it only once matters. So you can flip it as many times as you want. I just find in terms of getting it off the grill cleanly, I use a fish spatula, which is a, a hyper-thin spatula with something of a blade on the front of it. Um, you can buy them on Amazon. You can buy them in like Williams-Sonoma or, or any kind of decent restaurant supply store, but Amazon's probably your best bet. And what that does is that's super thin, and you can you can get underneath your burger to make sure that it's not sticking, and then you can flip it that way. Um, finally, don't don't dick with it too much. <laughs> I mean, you know, it should be meat and fat and salt, and then that's it. And then when it comes off the grill, then you can do whatever you want to it. Then you can put pepper on it or Cajun seasoning and any number of toppings that you want. But burgers that have stuff in the grind. They're okay, but they're not that perfect American burger that that all of us are seeking. That is only meat and fat and fire. That sounds like the recipe for a good night right there. <laughs> well, and then you need beer. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Speaking of beer, Dan, you got another cooking question for, uh, for Hank here? I'm going to give you the next one. All right. So, like... Believe it or not, Mark, you may think I'm some dirtbag from Iowa, but <laughs> University Believe... of Wisconsin, you're yeah. just a bullhead eater. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got the nail on the head right there, Hank. <laughs> but okay, so me and my wife, we really like wine. Is there a particular style of wine or kind type of wine that that you would recommend with venison? Yes. Um now, let me preface this by saying, drink what you want. 
there are, you know, if you want a Chardonnay with your venison, you like it, drink it. No, you know, no, no normal person will make fun of you. But if you're, if you're going to do, you know, what I think are the best pairings, it, it does depend on how you're cooking your venison. But let's just go back to the steak or the burger. Um, burger is kind of casual, and I like a Zinfandel. Um, a Zinfandel probably from the Sierra Nevada foothills or Napa or Sonoma. The Lodi Zins tend to be a little heavy and syrupy, and I don't think they go well with food. But a nice Zinfandel is a good sort of outdoor red wine. Date night or special occasion, there's a French wine that's called Chateauneuf de Pape. Um, and it's the word chateau and then N-E-U-F D apostrophe P-A-P-E. It's basically the Pope's wine is what it translates to, more or less. It is a knockout with venison in any game for that matter. And like uh, wine, like Bebmo, Wines and More, like any decent place that has wine will have one. Um, a Cote de Rhone blend, another French wine, is a really good choice. A Spanish Rioja is a really good choice. And those I've seen in supermarkets all over the country. Uh, if you're looking for California varieties, it's really kind of up to you. I mean, there, there's not a lot of, you know, I've had some cabs that were really good with venison steak, but then again, I've had some Pinot Noirs that were really good. And and those are sort of your, your two ends of the red spectrum. And if it's me, I kind of like the Spanish wines and the Italian wines and the French wines, but that's because I grew up on the East Coast. And even though I live in California, and that's traitorous to say, um, I'm kind of going with the I'm kind of going with those French ones, and they're just they're wines to be drunk with food, and a lot of the California wines are wines to be drunk by themselves. Oh, I'd say next time you're in the doghouse, Dan, you now know what to do. Yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. go to a wine shop and order Chateau Neuf de Pop, and bring it home, and it's it's money. Everybody loves that wine. As long as right. you cook the steak the right way, Dan. Right. Yes, right. <laughs> I could blow the whole night right. just by. <laughs> Just by that. You don't want her uh, non on cardboard. <laughs> so so what about this, Hank? If there were two or, sorry, three preparations of venison that every single deer hunter should have, like, nailed down, perfected, like, these are the three, like, just staples, what would you say those three staples of preparation should be? Well, we've talked two of them. The cooking steaks, cooking burgers, the third would be uh, to master a stew. Um, a stew meat can be any part of the animal, from the neck to the shoulder, to trim, to whatever. And it's not just throwing everything in the pot. Any, kind of, any good stew is built like a house. There are foundations and there are you know, filleries that you put on on the end. And the structure of a stew is, now it, it varies, but this will get you started. Brown your meat in some sort of fat, you know, lard, butter, olive oil, you choose. Don't crowd the pan when you're doing it. A lot of guys will throw in all the meat that they're going to use right at the get-go. Well, there's, there's too much moisture in the pan then. You're going to steam the meat and not brown it. So you have to take your time and put in maybe a dozen pieces of meat at a time and, and brown them well. I mean, like, get a good crust on them. 
and then set them aside and then just keep running through and doing it until your meat is nice and round. Then you throw in your onions, maybe, you know, carrots, celery, garlic, whatever. And then what you do is you throw that in the pan, which will have all this brown stuff on the bottom of it, which you want. The French call it fond, which is, you know, basically French for really good stuff on the bottom of a pan. <laughs> I like that translation. <laughs> it is. It's, it's loosely translated. But, uh, <laughs> but what happens is the moisture from all those vegetables loosens up all of that crusty stuff on the bottom of the pan and adds flavor. So once the vegetables are nice and soft, you can brown them too if you want, but you have to soften them at least. Throw the meat back in, throw some bourbon, or throw some wine in, or throw some beer in, and let that boil for a little bit to get the alcohol off. And then you throw in water or stock, and then you let that simmer until the meat is tender. Now there's a, there's a trick to venison stews. I guarantee you, you guys have both have had a venison stew where the meat looked really nice, but it was kind of dry and chalky on the inside. True. Am I right? Yeah, yeah. So there's two ways to defeat that. One is Cajun, one is Mexican. So the Cajun way, if you've ever been to Cajun country and had a sauce piquant, a sauce piquant is essentially any animal chopped into little bitty pieces and then cooked in a gumbo-like kind of a, uh, kind of a, a stew. That is brilliant. If you cut the meat small enough, and I'm talking like the size of your thumbnail, first of all, you don't have to brown it. And it, when it gets tender, the surface, to mass, the surface to mass ratio of the meat to the rest of the stew is small enough so that you do not get that set sensation of dryness. So you follow? So like when you have a big chunk of venison stew, the outside of that venison stew is going to taste great because it's infused with all the stew. The center's not. So that's where you get that chalkiness and that sort of tacky mouthfeel. When you, if you cut it small, it's, it's totally coated with the, with the stew and it's wonderful. So that's one trick. The other trick is what Cajuns do or what Mexicans do with barbacoa or with carnitas. You cut big chunks, you know, like chunks the size of your hand. And then stew that until it wants to fall apart. And then you take two forks and shred the heck out of it. And then you shred the meat and throw that back in the stew. And then every fiber of the meat's coated with your stew. And it's super tender and moist and everybody will love it. That's the second thing you should remember other than don't grind your shanks. Cut it small or shred it. And you're, you will make, no matter what recipe you use for your venison stew, it will improve 100 times. Man, and that's something I've never... I'd never heard that before, so this is great. It makes a lot of sense, one, too. I have one real quick question. I know we're coming up on time here pretty soon, but side dishes. Mm-hmm. Is there any – how about your favorite side dishes for hamburgers and your favorite side dishes for steaks? Well, for burgers, you don't want to go too fancy. So in the high summer, I do a tomato salad. I pull tomatoes off my garden, mix them with sweet red onions, a, a clove of garlic, Whatever herb happens to be growing in the garden, maybe some mozzarella cheese, those little mozzarella cheese balls, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Uh, you can get them in the supermarket. And then um, some olive oil, and that's it. Call it a day. Um, potato salad's really good. You know, I mean, it's people like to hate on potato salad as being kind of ghetto, but <laughs> a, a really good potato salad, I mean, 
make your own, make it yourself, make a really good one. And people are like, damn, that's a good potato salad, you know? <laughs> and I mean, it's, it's a burger. You don't want to go all pinky in the air with it. Um, so with steaks, you can go pinky in the air uh, if you want. And you got to have some kind of a starch, I think. And usually I will do in the winter, like if it's season, I'll do a wild rice pilaf. So I'll cook some wild rice and I'll cook some regular rice and mix them. You got to cook them separate because they cook different. Uh, and then whatever you want in the pilaf, you know, onions, cranberries, little bits of persimmon, um, you know, something sweet, something crunchy. Usually like a black walnuts I'll throw in a pilaf. I'll throw dried cranberries in a pilaf. And then something, something you know, like a parsley or whatever. And that's a really classy easy side dish to do uh green salad always good with the steak especially because steaks tend to be kind of rich um but usually the side dishes are something that is very very seasonal you know roasted beets maybe uh roasted root vegetables there's another good idea uh in the springtime morel mushrooms and wild onions you can't can't do wrong with that but it's it'll change month to month year to year all of that sounds amazing. <laughs> and, you know, like Dan said, we, we have used up a lot of your time here, so I want to be uh, respectful of that and let you go here. But I've got one more question. Um, I really, I, I literally probably could spend like three more hours talking to you, Hank, because I'm just fascinated by this stuff. The, well, let's go back yeah. on in October. That's when that Kickstarter's coming on for this next book. Yeah, I would, I would love to do that because I think there's a lot more we haven't got to cover that I'd love to. We've just kind of covered a couple of these basics. Um, Two more questions, actually. One is about something you just mentioned, but the first one, really quickly. We've talked about the basics that, that, we, that we need to know, but if there was one dish that's out of people's comfort zone, adventurous, unique, that people might be a little intimidated by or scared of or something like that, what's the one adventurous dish that you would recommend our listeners to finally try? Okay, you, you laid the gauntlet down, and I'll pick it up. Um, barbacoa <laughs> with a doe's head. Whoa. Yeah, see? <laughs> that, that even Are you eating the brain? Are you eating the brains too? Hot, right? So <laughs> Wow. But you are know you, Are you eating the brains too? I usually leave them out because they, they're hard to get out. But it's all the meat that's on top of the head and the tongue. And if you've if you've ever had real Mexican barbacoa, it is slow cooked meat off of a cow's head or a calf's head and then shredded. I mean, it's not like you're sitting there eating a head, right? So the cook, <laughs> the cook pulls all the meat off, and it's shredded, and then you eat it in tacos or burritos. Uh, it's ridiculous. And it's like, okay, so if you want to taste it, go to Chipotle and order the barbacoa. Now, they don't use a head of a calf for it, but that's the same. It tastes exactly the same. That shit's good. Yeah, it is. And hey, do you have a recipe for deer head? <laughs> uh, no, I need to. It's going to be in the book. Um and you obviously you got to do it in a place that you don't have CWD. Yeah. Um, and you either have to saw the antlers off or you do it with a doe. And if you want an exciting, you know, that'll be a conversation piece. <laughs> <laughs> That's an understatement. <laughs> That's awesome. So speaking of this new book, you've hinted at it a couple times. Can you share anything with us about what's next for you? I can. And I'm really, I'm actually super stoked about this. Um, I'm kind of moving away from the big New York City publishers because what I've discovered is um, there's a lot of 
uh, misinformation in some big city publisher groups that don't understand us, you know, people who eat venison. And um, so I'm actually going to do this through a Kickstarter campaign, and I'm asking all of you to help make this book happen. It is a book completely dedicated to just venison, to elk, to whitetails, to moose, to blacktails, to caribou, everything venison-like. And and it's it's going to have 120 recipes in it, and it's going to be a phenomenal book. If you've seen my uh, last book, which is Duck, Duck, Goose, it's going to be like that, except dedicated to deer hunters and elk hunters and anybody who's chasing four-footed antlered things. And we're going to do the Kickstarter campaign in October, and I'll let you know when that happens. And basically, it's like a fun drive. Like, if you're interested in the book, you pledge 30 bucks and you get a copy of the book and you help make this happen all the way up to like, there'll be some rich people who will donate like $5,000 and I'll fly to their house and cook them and 10 of their buddies a gourmet meal for, you know, a seven course meal. Wow. So there's everything from like that kind of stuff down to, Hey, I just want the book. And it's, I think it's going to be a really nice way to connect with the community to make something great happen. I think that's pretty cool. And if if somehow I win the lottery between now and then, I will pledge the $5,000 to get you to come cook for me, all right? Because <laughs> that sounds amazing. But I think that I think that's awesome that you're doing the Kickstarter. And um, I'm excited about the book. I'm definitely going to be pitching in for it because I want a copy of, the, of one of those as soon as I can. Because I, uh, like I said before, I think you are a culinary genius. Flat out, my wife and I have just enjoyed the heck out of everything you put out there. So... For people that want to see some of your recipes that you currently have out there online, where can they go? You go to Hunter Angler Gardener Cook, which is honest-food.net. But all you need to do is Google my name, Hank Shaw, and you will find it. That's the easiest. It's only eight letters. Very easy. Perfect. So we will make sure to have all those links on the blog post for this podcast episode two. So if you're listening and if you can't figure out how to Google Hank Shaw, you'll have that option too. So... This has been awesome, Hank. Like uh, like I said a couple minutes ago, we'd love to have you on again to talk about more of these things uh, because there is so much to learn about cooking venison well and so many exciting new ways to try it out that uh, they continue to get me excited, and I know a lot of our listeners too. So thank you for sharing your experience and your insight when it comes to all this. I appreciate it. Thanks again for having me on. You're very welcome. Good luck this season and uh, with a new book. <laughs> Thanks a lot. You too this season. Thanks a lot. All right, well, I don't know about you, but uh, I am ready for a venison steak dinner right about now. This has been awesome, and I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. And uh, maybe we'll get, be able to get Hank back on the line sometime down the, down the road because I think there's a lot more we could talk about. So with that said, it's time to close up shop, wrap this podcast up. It's been a great one. And, of course, before we do close things up, I do want to thank our partners who helped make this podcast possible We appreciate you guys listening to the ads, listening to us talk about the partners on occasion because they do allow us to create this podcast and make it free for you guys. So big thank you to Sika Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Lacrosse Boots, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. Most importantly, though, thank you guys all for joining us today. Hope you learned something. Hope this got you excited to cook up some venison soon. And of course, I hope you'll stay Wired to Hunt.